0: Whether have a good day or a bad day. Good day. Good day. What was your worst day ever? Okay, my worst day ever was being a baby. Cause uh my whole face was blue when I was born. Cause they were like so big. <laughs> you remember this? Yeah, and then I'm gonna go the hospital <laughs> It's not complicated. We all have bad days. For inspiration on hanging tough and staying true to God's Word, look no further than the life of David. Well, we're in a nine week study of the life of David as we learn how to pursue the heart of God above all other priorities in life. In seasons of obscurity, we want to draw near to God. In seasons of victory, We want to draw near to God, and today, in seasons of adversity, we want to pursue the heart of God. But I don't think I need to motivate you to seek God when you're in trouble, because the most natural thing in the world is to pursue our all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful Lord in times of adversity. When life caves in on us, when the rug of life is pulled out from under us, When we're truly broken, when bad things happen, our instinctive response is to seek the Lord in prayer and to open our hearts to Him. Ten years ago, I was at home on a Friday evening. It was around 11 o'clock. Kayleen was driving back to Joplin on Interstate 44, returning from a Christ in Youth conference. Our older daughter, who was five months pregnant, was in the front passenger seat. Our son-in-law was riding in the back between our five-year-old granddaughter and three-year-old grandson who were strapped into car seats on either side of him. Kayleen had the cruise control set on the speed limit, 70 miles an hour. When an 18-wheeler passed the car directly behind her and then too soon pulled back into the right lane, striking her in the driver's side, rear quarter panel. The impact turned that 2000 Lincoln sideways and then there was a second hit. Kayleen has a vivid memory of the grill of that Mack truck against her window, sending her across the median to 360 degree turns before the car died as it rolled on down the highway headed into the oncoming eastbound traffic, she had just enough momentum to steer the car over onto the shoulder. And amazingly, the old girl was drivable. That's what I call my vintage Lincoln, not my wife. (laughs) Now, I share this story with you, this true story, because because it has two telling God moments. One was the instant that semi hit the car, our son-in-law, Brian, immediately cried out, out loud, praying over and over, Oh, God, help us, save us. That car should have flipped over. It didn't. Except for a bruise on Kayleen's lower left leg, no one even had the slightest injury. A half dozen state police could not believe that no one needed an ambulance. The children in the car seats did not even wake up. The airbags did not even deploy. The second God moment was when I got the call at home and I learned what had happened. I hung up the phone And I immediately went to my knees beside my bed And I poured out my gratitude to God For a long time Friends Brian did not have to think about it To cry out for God's mercy And I didn't have to be schooled On how to pray a prayer of gratitude For both of us It was immediate It was instinctive it was involuntary and my guess is that some of you here this morning could tell your own story about such a moment or such a season when you pursued god in an emergency or in adversity and he met you there but have you noticed this whenever you're in a season of adversity there is often an adversary And in 1 Samuel chapter 18, David is experiencing a season of adversity. Now, you would think that a few days after David killed the giant, he should have ascended to the throne of Israel. After all, he had already been anointed by Samuel, the prophet Samuel. He'd been victorious in battle over Goliath, and that should have elevated him to be the prince in anticipation of becoming the king, but it didn't happen that way. As a matter of fact, David's victory ushered in one of the longest, darkest life passages that he ever experienced. He was 30 years old when he eventually became king, so we're talking here about 13 to 15 consecutive bad years. Now, you've had a bad day. Uh, Maybe you've had a bad month. Maybe you've had a bad year, but 15 consecutive bad years, and the reason that he was in this season of adversity is revealed in the text. It's because he had an adversary. Let me tell you the story from 1 Samuel 18, and then we'll pull out some real-life lessons. Here we go. After King Saul witnessed David's courage David's strength, David's skill on the battlefield, he decided to keep him in the palace. And he began to send David out on military operations. And David was always successful. And so he advanced quickly through the ranks to achieve the status of general at a very early age. And when he returned to the city, the women came out to joyfully welcome David and his army home. In 1 Samuel eighteen seven, we read about it. As they danced, they sang. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This made Saul very angry. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So King Saul's jealous anger caused him to become so depressed that he actually tried to spear David. So here's David, serving the king faithfully. He's even taken his harp and played harp music when the king was in this period of intense depression to soothe his spirit, trying to help him. And what does the king do? Well, he takes a javelin and he tries to harpoon David. Twice David eluded him. And he would later attempt to take his life a third time in the same way. Saul's contempt for David was born of jealousy, but not only jealousy. It was also born of fear because he knew that the Lord was with David. And he also knew that God's Spirit had departed from him. So Saul sent David out on impossible missions, hoping he would die in battle. But that backfired, and instead he won victory after victory, and he became a legend. Saul had promised his daughter, Merib, to David as his wife. You remember that. Whoever defeated Goliath on the battlefield would receive the king's daughter as his wife. This was Merib, but he insulted David and he humiliated David by giving her to another man. And then one of Saul's other daughters named Michael professed love for David, but she was a handful. So Saul was only too glad to give her to David because he honestly believed that Michael would eventually be complicit with him in betraying David and David agreed to marry her and Saul suggested that the price for Michael was that he had to produce the evidence that he had killed 100 Philistines another thinly veiled attempt on David's life so David brought him physical evidence think of it sort of like scalps read that passage and you'll say why well, I said scalps He brought proof that he had dispatched 200 Philistines. So David said, evidence that you've killed 100 of my enemies, and David brought evidence of having killed 200. Look at 1 Samuel 18, 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and remained his enemy the rest of his days. Now, that's the content of 1 Samuel 18, but now I've got a dilemma because there are so many teachable truths in this chapter. I have not been able to settle on a singular big idea. Now, everything I want to say this morning is related to pursuing the heart of God, but it doesn't exactly coalesce. So here's what I want to do. I want to say a couple of good things about how adversity or trouble actually accelerates or can accelerate our pursuit of God. And then secondly, I want to talk about pursuing God when someone spears you, someone skewers you, someone stabs you in the back. So this message is going to be more like a shotgun blast than it is a rifle shot, if I can use that metaphor. We're going to spray the target this morning instead of hitting the bull's eye with a single clean hole, okay? Let me talk about adversity. David was in a season... Of adversity. We don't like seasons of adversity. We see adversity as negative. We want to get through adversity just as quickly and as easily as possible. Give me a pill for the pain. Give me a shot to get well. Give me a loan to get me on top again. Give me a shopping trip to cure my depression. Give me a new relationship to get me over my loneliness. But before you breeze through your adversity with a quick fix. Is there anything about the bad stuff in life that God might be able to use to bless us? Absolutely. And David's season of adversity certainly did some good things in him, and from it we learn that adversity can make you a deeper person. You see, David was not shallow. Read the Psalms. Read his prayers. He was a man of genuine humility, deep personal faith. If you trace David's life, he often considered others ahead of himself. He was a kind man. He was a compassionate man. He was a man of self-control. But he wasn't perfect. We're going to learn that down the line. But neither was he morally bankrupt. He repented when he was confronted with his sins of adultery and conspiracy. And all the stuff that David experienced in his life refined his character. He was overlooked by his father. He was shunned by his brothers. He was given menial chores. And then in Saul's house, promises are made to him and routinely broken. Rewards are unjustly withheld. He's restricted from contact with his family of origin, and we learn that some of his friends died because of their loyalty to him. Later in his life, he's treated with disrespect. He's betrayed by his own adult children. He's abandoned by people that once professed love for him. All this adversity in David's life made him a deeper man, made him a better leader. David was not a lightweight. He was not like many leaders today. They're the mile wide and about an inch deep Idleness and self-indulgence were not what made David a deeper man. I'm telling you, adversity did that. William Blakey wrote, Adversity, your features are hard. Your fingers are of iron. Your look is stern and repulsive. But underneath your hard crust lies a true heart, full of love and full of hope, if only we had the grace to believe this. Eugene Peterson wrote his memoirs of 50 years in ministry, and he called his book The Pastor. He tells about starting a small church in the Washington, D.C. area. Three years into it, they launched a building program to construct a worship center that would seat 300 He said the energy in his church was contagious. The excitement was palpable as they worked on it together while they worshiped in the basement of his house. And when they finished the project, they thought it was the greatest thing to happen in the region. Now the sky was the limit for their church. But two months after the project was done, Peterson said the attendance began to decline. People were finding other things to do than to grow a church. And when people began to miss week after week, he would go and seek them out. And he said not a single one was disgruntled, not a single one was upset. They just got involved in other things. He said the malaise spread throughout the congregation. He said he could feel the adrenaline draining out of his own soul. And he described this season as the badlands of his life and it lasted for six years. And he called it the Badlands because if you've ever been to the Dakotas, you know there are areas in the Dakotas where there's nothing green, (laughs) there's nothing growing, there's no signs of life, no trees, no water, no towns. And he said that he learned in that season that the church would not always be a fertile farm with rolling green hills, and there would not always be grand Horizons and majestic mountains, he learned that growth has periods of dormancy. And he determined during those years that the church is not a perpetual pep rally, it's a place of deep relationships, patient faith, sacrificial service, faithful stewardship. Well, what else can adversity do? It can make us deeper people, individually and corporately. Well, adversity can also make you a dependent person, not just a deeper person, but a dependent person. I noticed a particular phrase that appears something like 25 times in 1 Samuel, and it's this, David fled and escaped. That little phrase appears and reappears throughout 1 Samuel, reoccurring theme of his life during this season. David's stripped of his good name. He's stripped of his position. He's stripped of his wife. He's stripped of his mentor, Samuel, who dies. stripped of his closest friend, Jonathan, who's killed in battle. He's stripped of his self-respect, his dignity. But all that is stripped away takes David back to a place of utter dependence on God. You've heard this expression. God helps those who help themselves. That's not Scripture, and it's not true. God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who admit that they're helpless and depend on Him for help. And some of God's greatest servants have had to learn dependence on Him in the badlands of life. Abraham's season of adversity was waiting for what seemed like forever to see God's promises fulfilled Joseph's adversity was 13 years of injustice spent languishing in an Egyptian prison before his dreams were realized. Moses' adversity was being sidelined by a mistake that he made, and he was sidelined for 40 years. Paul's adversity was a thorn in the flesh that he had to learn to live with until the day he died. So what is it? What is it in your life right now that you might classify as adversity before you quickly flush it? Milk it. Milk it for all it's worth to take you to a deeper place with God, a place of greater dependence on God. So then what do you do when you're backstabbed. Well, David never did anything to Saul. He was completely loyal. He was no threat to King Saul. He even helped Saul. He secured his kingdom against the Philistines. He soothed him with harp music. So why was Saul so bent on destroying David? The answer is right there in the text. We've already looked at it. It was jealousy and fear. And because of that, As Saul aged, he became a very mean man. He became a truly evil man. We all have the idea that as we age, we'll mellow. We'll get better. It's not always true. Saul lied and plotted and manipulated and schemed and blasphemed and killed. He became a man devoid of conscience. And listen, my friends, those people are out there today, and you may cross paths with one or more of them in your lifetime. There are just a lot of hurt people out there, and hurt people hurt people. And Christians have known to be targets because, like David, God blesses people who have a heart for him. And when people see your goodness, they see your joy, they see your peace, They may become jealous or resentful. But David teaches us by example how God wants us to respond when we are victimized. First of all, don't take revenge. When you're backstabbed, don't take revenge. Maybe you heard about the Desert Storm soldier who received a Dear John letter from his girlfriend back home. And to add insult to injury, she wrote, Please return my favorite photograph of myself. I need it for my engagement picture in the newspaper. Well, the poor guy was devastated, but his brother soldiers came to his rescue. And they collected pictures of all their girlfriends and put them in a shoebox. And the soldier sent it to his former girlfriend with a note saying, Please find your picture here and return the rest. For the life of me, I can't remember which one you were. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> and I confess, I get some satisfaction out of that story. Apparently, you do too. Because our natural response, our knee-jerk response to a betrayer is to get even. And David didn't do that. Saul tried to take David's life. David never tried to get even. He actually had two perfect occasions to take Saul out. But he wouldn't do it. And his own officers tried to convince him to take revenge. End Saul's life. Seize the throne. And they told him, God's making it possible. Get the perfect opportunity. Here's providential. Do it. But I think Leviticus 19.18 was engraved on David's conscience. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then take a look at David's own words. He actually said this to Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. And it never did. You know, many times when someone stabs us in the back or harms us in some way, our knee-jerk reaction is to respond in Kind, yet David's example is that it's not right. Even if we have the perfect opportunity, even if all our friends are trying to convince us to do it. Look at what was written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in Rome. Now, there was probably no city on the planet where Christians were more mistreated and disrespected and unjustly persecuted than Rome. And here's what Paul writes to the Christians. If you take revenge, you're not leaving room for God's wrath because it's as though the Lord sees you handling it and he steps back and says, Oh, excuse me, you're going to take care of this, all right? And it doesn't turn out nearly as well as when we're obedient to these truths. Now, the most widely accepted and widely practiced form of revenge, particularly in Christian circles, is trash-talking or gossip. Well, you're not going to get even. Except we can be subversive, we can be clandestine in our conversation. That's a little harder to trace. I find it interesting that David did not even trash-talk Saul. He told the truth about what Saul was trying to do to him, to Saul's son, Jonathan, Who was his intimate, his close friend, but it was because he thought Jonathan might affect a reconciliation. He might produce some kind of peacemaking between them. David never slammed Saul's character. He never made snide remarks. He never ridiculed Saul. In fact, he even defended Saul. And we need to take a lesson from David here not to take revenge. Well, can we learn anything else when we're backstabbed? Yes. Be faithful. It's commendable that David continued to serve Saul faithfully even after Saul had tried repeatedly to spear him. Saul had sent him away and demoted him and cut the size of his army. Look at this in 1 Samuel 18, 13. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. All Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So here's David faithfully serving Saul, even though he's unfairly treated, even though his rank is reduced, even though he's assigned missions that become very high risk. He could have gone AWOL, you know. He just could have gone AWOL. That's easy to do when you're stabbed in the back. Just throw in a towel. A friend abandons you, so you give her the cold shoulder. You're not going to get even. You're just going to freeze her out. Your boss makes the workplace unpleasant. You decide you're just going to quit your job. You'll show him. You don't think you're appreciated, so you turn in your teacher's book. Your leadership is criticized, so you write out your resignation. David didn't Do that. And God used the injustice that he suffered to build his character so that when he became king, he could face difficult circumstances because he'd already been through the fire. He'd learned to lean on God in tough times. By the way, while David was on the run from Saul, he wrote many of the Psalms in the Old Testament. Do you realize, if not for this 13 to 15-year season of adversity, we would not have some of the richest passages in the Bible, like Psalm 142. I, I won't take time to read it this morning, but there are half a dozen or seven verses there in Psalm 142, written by David while he was hiding in a cave. It ministers, it can minister to all of us. We wouldn't have it if it had not been this season in David's life. One qualifier. You should not allow yourself, you hear me? You should not allow yourself to be a punching bag if physical abuse is part of your adversity. You should get out of the situation. Even David fled to keep from being injured or killed. Just one more thing to do when you're backstabbed. Extend forgiveness. You know, after Saul, David's adversary... uh, Attempted to take his life, humiliated him, demoted him, threatened him, exiled him. (laughs) David postured himself toward Saul with humility. Now it's only implied, but I think you can see it in the text of 1 Samuel 18 18. Now here's what he says at the prospect of marrying Michael and becoming Saul's son in law Who am I that I should become the king's son in law? evidence that he had a forgiving spirit toward Saul. And I'm convinced that David's humility here is evidence of his forgiveness. You see, if you have been sinned against, you have the moral high ground. If you've been sinned against, you have the moral high ground. If you've been unfairly or cruelly victimized by an adversary, then you become the judge. And they become the defendant. But in an act of forgiveness, you condescend. You humbly lay aside your judgment robes and you take your place beside the offender. Is it easy to do? Nope. Is it the right thing to do? Yes. Yes. And Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate personification of this humility. Philippians chapter 2, He made Himself of nothing, took the very nature of a servant, humbled Himself, and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see, it was to extend forgiveness to you and me that Jesus humbled Himself. We are the offenders. We are the sinners. But in humility, He extends Forgiveness to us, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. Romans 5 8. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He pursues us. He pursues us with his grace, extending his forgiveness. And he gives us the opportunity to pursue him by receiving Him as Savior and following Him as our Lord. And if you're here this morning and you have never responded to the forgiveness and grace of God in Jesus Christ, we want to end this service by giving you that opportunity. I don't know how many times you've heard the gospel, but you've seen it here and heard it here in David but never more dramatically, more dynamically than in the son of David, Jesus. And so as he extends his forgiveness and grace this morning, if you have a decision to make for him or for Crossroads, we invite you to come. Our section hosts will be here to meet you, counsel with you. A few of us pastors will be here at the front. We'd love to talk with you about your decision right now while we worship in a final song.